0: Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, Chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And with me today is Dr. Bill Maurice, the President and CEO of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. Hi, Bill. Welcome back. It's been a while.
1: Yeah, I know. It's like uh, I was just thinking that it's been a while since we've had a chance to
0: talk. I know we've both been traveling. I just got back from Dubai, the big MedLab conference there, and I think you've been traveling as always as well.
1: That's right. Yeah, I was in Southeast Asia again, and then I was actually in Arizona last week, where it was surprisingly cool and very rainy because of that the atmospheric river that was hitting the west coast Mm. made its way into Arizona, and it actually made me think of of something, a topic for us, and that is I remember. A couple of years ago during COVID, they had a rainy spring in Phoenix, and it led to an outbreak of a vector-borne illness. I'm blanking on which one St. Louis
0: encephalitis.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: I was actually thinking the same thing as you were saying that. We are seeing more climate change, or some people have said climate weirding because the climate's getting weird. It's not just global warming or, you know, there's rain, unpredictable storms. The East Coast right now is getting a lot of snow. And yet here we are in Rochester, Minnesota, and it's relatively warm for this time of year. Temperatures even up to 40 degrees. So. weird would be a good way to describe the weather these days.
1: I think weather weirding is a much more accurate <laughs> descriptor because I've thought about that too. I mean, at our cabin in northern Minnesota, which we mm-hmm. talked about before, and there's no snow. I mean, it's been warm up there too. And that's the other thing I've thought about is, boy, the thick mm-hmm. and mosquito season and vector season, if you will, is going to be pretty rough. And And what you've talked about before too is about some of these Arthropods now moving further and further north as well because without the heart freezes. So,
0: along those lines, yeah, let's talk about infectious diseases. There are several that do have a probable attachment, or at least they're linked in some way with climate changes, as we're seeing some emerging, re-emerging diseases, some are becoming worse with certain weather conditions. It's a complicated interaction, as we've talked about in the past, because you get too hot and then the ticks can't survive, but then the mosquitoes may Enjoy that weather. But regardless, it looks like there's more and more data linking climate change to some of the changes we're seeing and expansion of vector borne diseases and other diseases.
1: Yeah. And along those lines, I'm sure you noticed that just this week there was a multi-agency plan from CDC and HHS around vector borne illnesses. Vector borne diseases are a global threat with national security economic and health implications for the United States. So yeah, so they it sounds Mm -hmm. like they're putting together Plans to try and protect us from a public health perspective.
0: Well, I think it's very wise. And I was glad to see it's, yeah, 84 page strategy, 17 federal departments and agencies that work together to develop this we have to think of vector borne diseases not only was there the st louis encephalitis outbreak we have west Nile virus which is mosquito transmitted but then you and i just talked about the malaria cases that had popped mm-hmm. up in the u.s we have the vectors the mosquitoes for those diseases and we have the weather to support it it's just that we've been able to eliminate the parasite but as it gets reintroduced back it could take a foothold Dengue is another concern, and worldwide, malaria and dengue are two of the top vector-borne concerns. And then, of course, in the U.S., we have a lot of tick-borne diseases. So I'm really glad to see that we have this multi-agency approach, really looking at how the public and the government and private and academic institutions can work together for monitoring and controlling vector-borne diseases.
1: Yeah, I was glad to see it, too. First of all, it caught my eye. Because I get alerts now because I travel so much that there was an alert I just got today about dengue in Singapore Mm -hmm. and that the number of cases are going up. And, you know, these are serious illnesses. And and also, though, kind of uh, at least to see this cooperative approach coming out of the pandemic, of course, that that was what got us through the pandemic was Mm -hmm. this interagency and public-private collaboration and partnership. And so, I mean, that's really what it's going to take. These are complex issues, to your point that it really takes a lot of collaboration and strong leadership to, to kind of address. And there are unfortunately, things that we're going to have to keep addressing as the news reminds us. So for us, we're answers from the lab. So thinking about how does a lab, how do we as clinical laboratory professionals think about these things, participate in some of these discussions, and help provide that leadership, right?
0: Yeah, and actually one of their aims for this vector-borne disease strategy is to begin development and implementation of guidance to diagnose diseases and their pathogens. Of course, you have to have the initial clinical suspicion and exposure, but often it comes down to the laboratory because there's so much overlap with these diseases. You get a febrile illness in a certain time of year, but that could be tick-borne, it could be mosquito-borne, it could be leptospirosis, it could be something else. It could even be plague, which is also has also been in the news. I think you saw this, Bill. There's a rare case of bubonic plague just reported in Oregon. Again, you could see these during summer months, and this is something that requires a laboratory diagnosis for confirmation.
1: Yeah, I saw that. And then there was, I think, Alaska pox. Uh- And these are, I think, zoonotic infections, meaning it's interaction of people with animals, which Mm -hmm. is another thing we're seeing more and more of as people continue to go into new areas and be around. You know, these things are popping up. Part of it, I think, was that with COVID, we had kind of heightened vigilance from a press perspective around infectious diseases. But the flip side is that there's these things are becoming more and more of a challenge. and, And from a diagnostic perspective, we have to be ready to help healthcare deliverers, public health, others understand mm-hmm. the role of the lab and the tests that we have with regulators, as I'm sure we'll talk about again, the need to develop new tests, <laughs> mm-hmm. right, for some of these things. Even yeah, a lot of these common-
0: are going to be laboratory-developed tests, right? And we're going to be talking more about FDA's proposed oversight of lab-developed tests. But exactly, I've said it before, I'll say it again. We are going to continue to see emerging and re-emerging pathogens, and whether it's plague, something that we think of as this ancient disease, it still is around. There are still cases in the US every year. So this case in Oregon was not unheard of. And it was actually uh, thought that the original outbreaks that were devastating in the 1500s, those were linked with climate change, or at least there's some data to support that now. And these are almost all zoonotic diseases. They're diseases of animals in the wild. And then as humans encroach upon natural habitats and with deforestation and changing environments, we are coming into closer contact with some of these diseases that we haven't seen before, or maybe only saw in small amounts. And now they're becoming more important.
1: Yeah, I think another piece. From a budgetary perspective, we've seen areas of public health get cut or get less attention because of all the money that was spent around COVID. So sexually transmitted infections are on the rise again. Syphilis is still thankfully rare, but it's increasing. The percentages are high. The numbers are still relatively low, thankfully. And we're seeing cases of congenital syphilis, which means that the primary and even the secondary stuff was undetected, right? And that someone has now... Harboring syphilis, and of course, it, it leads to a lot of problems in, oh, yeah. in, in newborns. And if it goes untreated in adults, it leads also to heart, you know, neurologic and cardiac complications and other things. So, again, testing is the key there. And I think it it touches on things that you and I have discussed as well. And it's not just testing, but thinking about who has access to testing. Things like syphilis tend to be much more common in indigent people, and because the disease is, is if someone that's in a healthcare system, it's relatively as long as they seek care because there's a physical lesion when you get it. So and then you yeah. get a rash and he's really sick. So it's around access too. But first of all, it's the right thing to do. We're healthcare professionals and so we've had to be thinking about the health of all the people that we of all of our neighbors, which is everybody. And the other is of course it does impact us because as these diseases t- find, take hold, as you say, they can start to spread. And uh, which is something we really had to think about from a awareness perspective, from an access perspective, this was a big thing with monkeypox about who had access to testing. These are all things that we have to really stay engaged in the public discourse.
0: Absolutely. And that's why I was pleased, really pleased to see when there were panels on things like Lyme disease and other tick-borne diseases, they did have people from the laboratory, laboratory leaders on those government panels. So for our listeners, when they get an invitation to participate in a panel You know, try to be part of that process or recommend another laboratory leader if you can't be part of the process, because we need those laboratory leaders, scientists, lab directors, pathologists, people that are really knowledgeable about lab testing, we need them part of all of these government panels when new guidelines are created. And Bill, I was glad to hear you mentioned the new syphilis testing guidelines. Those were just released on February 8th, the CDC Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, the MMWR. So we had people, obviously laboratory experts that were part of these new guidelines. And that's the kind of thing that is important for us all to be a part of because it's so impactful. And I think of the laboratory as really the backbone of medicine you can't many times make a diagnosis and come up with an appropriate treatment without that laboratory component.
1: Yep, absolutely right. And, and mm-hmm. as we keep thinking forward. So just like with contributing to new guidelines, I had the best testing because there's a lot of more dated tests out there for diseases like syphilis and shows the need for continued innovation and thinking about how we best use those tools.
0: Yeah. And we'll probably have a future session on syphilis as well as more sessions on laboratory developed tests and FDA oversight, because those are big issues that will be coming up soon.
1: Yep. And there'll be plenty to talk about, that is for sure.
0: Always, always. All right. All right. Well, thanks again, Bill, for another great session. Always good talking with you.
1: Yeah, I know. I not not getting to talk, so it's great to catch up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. See you next time. Sounds good.